Welcome back, my friends, to Young to Live By. It's a real pleasure to see you back here again and for another episode of Ask a Depth Psychologist. If you're new here or you're not familiar, this is our podcast series where people submit questions at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon, and then we answer them between ourselves and try and give the questions as much justice as they deserve. So if you'd like to get involved in that process, you're more than welcome to. You can sign up and submit a question for the next round of questions, which hopefully hopefully, will be in the new video recording setup for season two of Young to Live By. Again, no promises on that because there's a million moving pieces, but we're working as hard as we possibly can. So today we've got four questions, four very good questions. Some with, you know, we've not touched on some of these things before, which of course is in many ways the purpose of these things. What do you guys want to know? The first one is all about terminal lucidity which is, well, terminal, sort of the end of your life when you're dying, and lucidity is, well, lucidity. Is there any truth behind this? What could this possibly mean? And what could the mechanisms behind this be? So you had to go back and forth about that, I think. Um, and the, the next question was one I really, really liked. And the guy asked, is there any worth behind old methods of, we'll say, dealing with the psyche? or you know, divination and looking up at the stars and things like that. Is there any worth to them clinically or in a self-development purpose? Specifically the I Ching, the tarot and astrology were mentioned and the guy clarifies and goes, you know, is it just simply a case of myself projecting things in, into the methods? And if so, is that, is that still okay? Or, you know, what's, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the deal like? What do you guys think? So I, I enjoyed that one. Um, the, the third question was one that was more less depth psychology more personal and simply was what is your favorite poem and we got some interesting answers from you know, steve pauline and myself all very different answers you could say so that was a cool one to answer and the final question was much more of a serious one and essentially the guy said hey i went to cbt before and i've been diagnosed with the doubting disease which is a cbt term apparently um and I'm not, I'm not symptomatic at the moment, and that's, that's okay, but I feel like this comes up when I try and approach the unconscious. For, he mentioned Chevro's pendulum, for example, which we did a video demonstration of that, and I'll put a link to that in the description down below. And so when he goes to approach the unconscious with methods like this, he seems to doubt it a lot. And so we gave a pretty serious, Stephen Pauline, I should say, gave a very serious answer about, it's essentially about the negative suggestions behind calling yourself someone with the doubting disease you know, you've got to be careful because it's not just you listening you know the ego listening there is an unconscious there too and it's you know if you start doubting yourself you know the unconscious might start doing the same thing so you know it's, it's all a case of getting your your suggestions and and the way you view yourself and everything in line and in order so um i hope that that question was useful to the guy who who asked it so without any further ado i'm going to kick the first question back to steve in the past could you touch upon terminal lucidity? It seems interesting. If biological systems at the end of life is in decline, how does it make sense for this to happen? Just food for thought. It's one of those things that you can't really analyse um, post hoc because it's post-mortem and it doesn't work. You know, if somebody's in terminal lucidity, how do you know and to what extent are they in terminal lucidity? Because you can't bring them back and then ask them what they went through, otherwise they didn't die and therefore it wasn't terminal. You can get a manifestation that appears to be like that and that will happen at, at different levels. It also depends on why they're dying, frankly, and in what condition they are when they're dying. 
and a lot of it will depend upon who is interpreting terminal lucidity. Obviously, distressed members of the family uh, will have a particular view on that and a need for them to be that way. Uh, if you have a religious belief, you will, you will interpret it in a certain way. Yeah. And we've seen this, we've yeah. had family members die um, yeah, outside of that, I've seen plenty of death. You know, I, I've had a colleague bleed out and die on the floor in front of me uh, in a horrible way. And he was conscious and overheard somebody saying it was fatal and he was dying. Um, that wasn't nice. And I've seen plenty of other people die slowly, violently. Uh, including one poor fellow who was trapped in a car with, with a tree that had fallen oh, yes. on the car. Mm. It broke his neck. Mm. And, and the doctor wouldn't come out. The doctor wouldn't come out. There's a GP lived over the road. And I went and asked him to come out. And her response was, you know, first aid, don't you? And that was it. She wouldn't come out. The fire brigade were arguing about how to cut him out. Um, and he was slowly asphyxiating, his head crushed onto the steering column of his car. And his eyes were moving. And was that guy terminally lucid? I have no way of knowing, but I witnessed this last moments and they weren't very nice to witness. I don't expect it would have been nice for him on the inside. So I've seen plenty of death and dying. There's more I could go on. There's no point doing that because it's just uh, it's morbid. But, uh, but to return to the question, like everything else that's, that's meaningful, it would need to be interpreted in its context to see who is drawing the meaning and the interpretation out from that. Um, and take that from there. I'm not against the notion that there is some kind of momentary elevation in consciousness that might be due to a surge of brain activity which would be powered perhaps hormonally, psychoneuroendocrinely, uh, perhaps even some kind of program that's the result of a gene expression. You might know more than me about that, James, with your <coughs> PhD level you know, uh, knowledge of genetics. So I'm not ruling anything out. It's just that in situations like that, where there's a crossover from life into death, whether it's violent and sudden or slow, that crossover point is a mystery. And apart from so-called near-death experiences, and when you think about it, death is an absolute condition. You know, you can't be half dead. Mm. You know, you're either dead or you're not. It's like Shakespeare, to be or not to be. Shakespeare understood. You can't be both. It's one or the other. It's a mystery. And you can't ask people afterwards what it was like. Although people who've had so-called near-death experiences often report a lucidity or an out-of-body experience. Well, I'm experiencing out-of-body experiences, uh, none of which in my case were due to trauma or to anesthetic. But I know other people, friends of mine, who've gone through it following trauma. Uh, and uh, following hospital anaesthetics. So who knows whether it's the same phenomenon or not? We can't be sure. You'd have to analyse it in the moment the best that you can and come up to some kind of meaning about it. That's the limit of my knowledge, and I'm sure plenty of other people know more and can explicate more beyond that. Um, I hope that's something of an answer. It's the best I can offer, given my own experience. Yeah, the, the scientific side of that, I was interested in this for quite a while, maybe like actually 10 years ago, probably. And the evidence for that, it wasn't particularly strong from like, but you can't, it's one of those things you can't really like peer review in a lab. Is it? So you're not going to get you know, evidence like this in a top research journal. I did find some evidence that there is some mechanism that makes it incredibly peaceful. 
to pass away. That's one thing. Then I've also seen people in front of me dying and it's not very peaceful whatsoever. Mm. So again, it's one of those things kind of like from an evolutionary perspective, would there, would there be, why would there be built in mechanisms at all for the passing over to the next life? Because of course the idea is unless it's through some epigenetic mechanism, um, usually you don't pass things on unless it's before the point of reproduction. So after that, if at the end of life, it's like, well, why, why would there be, for example, a mechanism that maintains lucidity or makes things peaceful or anything else? But, you know, anecdotal evidence does suggest that there might be something there, you know. But you have a this, didn't you, Paul, with that, uh, is it Sam, whatever his name oh, was? Oh, yes. Parnia. Um, yeah, Parnia. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think he was a cardiologist, yes, he was, yeah. if yeah. I recall rightly. Um, yeah, I think like you say, Steve, the, the problem with all of this is that the, the reports that, that people give obviously um, are based on um, what they're, they're going through at that time, which, yeah. is, which is a near-death experience as opposed to the, yeah. the absolute state of, of, of being dead. Yeah. Um, and they're nearly always coloured by their own belief system yeah. in some way, mm. um, from what I recall. Uh, and there's no doubt that people do re report in incredible things um, mm. and appear to have a very detailed recall afterwards of uh, what was done to them, for example, to resuscitate them, if, if it is a re resuscitation situation, or where relatives might have been at that time in respect to them. And I think even some of the case studies um, suggested that uh, they had a kind of a... Um, the, the person who was dying in inverted commas, a, a kind of a vantage point beyond the walls of the of the hospital that mm. they were dying in, for mm. example. So they they were able to report afterwards the movement of vehicles and yeah. all, all, yeah. all sorts of things. So, I mean, it is an incredibly interesting area of it research, is, is. isn't it? And, and the different things too, aren't they? Yes. You know, an near-death experience and terminal lucidity aren't yes. the same, although they may include similar yes. elements. Yeah. One is more verifiable, at least anecdotally, than the other. The other's not, <clears> you know, because yeah. you don't come back to say yeah. or to demonstrate in mm. any kind of controlled and repeatable way what yeah. happened. But people who've had a, a supposed near-death experience, by definition, do report these things. Mm. And the things that they report sometimes correlate with so-called out-of-body experiences mm. although you will get skeptics saying that's an ectoscopic hallucination yeah which is just a term for yeah. dismissal rather than mm. an analysis of of what it might be mm. so it, it, it's uh, it's difficult it's, it's it's a mystery yeah it really is it, it is isn't it yeah yeah, it's not something I don't think any of us will ever know, but you know, it's it's an interesting thing to consider, and I guess be be hopeful for in that regard. Um, but thank you, thank you, Stu. Uh, next question comes from Hermes, and Hermes has got an interesting question. He asks, "Do you think there is anything worthwhile in ancient oracles and methods of divination, such as the I Ching, the Tarot, astrology, etc.? Are they just archaic attempts and methods of communicating with the psyche, and are they useful at all for that endeavor?" I know that they're ridden with danger and people can really go off the deep end into woo-woo land with them, mm -hmm. compulsively consulting an astrologist about how your day is going to be and then influenced yeah. by the reading, for yeah. example. But is there any value to these methods if used properly and within context or are they just historical byproducts that should be left behind? I like that question. Yeah. Well, I, I think... Um... Yeah, I think the, the, the end part of the question really sort of says it all. If, if, if it's used properly, 
um, then essentially it's a projective technique uh -huh. of sorts, whether you, you, you know, you're consulting the, uh, the I Ching or you, you're doing a, a tarot spread or whatever it happens to be. But um, I think he's right to say too, that for some people it becomes almost a, a compulsion um where they they you know they have to kind of refer to it before they can even start their day um so uh, yes the, the, there are traps in there 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 really are um again it's it has to be context specific it does, doesn't it, it really does, yeah. um but where somebody is is harming themselves with it well I guess they have to know that they're doing that in the first place or that they might be having a bit of a problem with it in order to 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 break that habit or compulsion um i, I don't think in and of itself or any of these things are, are a problem necessarily but i think they do have to be handled with care yeah. i mean we clinically we we have had people who have been trapped by them yeah. um and um I guess they've been harming themselves with them and then it, it is a process of trying to uh to wean them off off yeah. whatever it is that they've, they've been involved with yeah. um what would you say oh, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with all of that um we've used them and we've investigated them um i got into young for the Ching. i think i've communicated actually with, with uh <coughs> Stu on uh, on discord recently about this actually mm. as i say, i got into to carl young directly uh, through his forward to the Richard Wilhelm translation of uh, the I Ching, mm -hmm. that was in 1973, and I was already um, fairly well steeped in uh, Freudian deaf psychology, but also humanistic and transpersonal psychologies as well. The kind of schools that emerged in the 60s, um, early 70s, and I was particularly shaped by Chinese culture and by tantrism, and I'm still very familiar with that and still in connection with that. But it was uh, Jung's approach to the I Ching, which I thought was absolutely amazing. Uh, I'd never seen anybody approach the problem of that in that way before. Uh, that really sold me on him, and that got me into into his works. I'd say that was 47 years ago, and I've been on that journey with him ever since. Um, I do think the I Ching is different to pretty much every other method I've ever encountered. There is something quite qualitatively different about working with that but you you either have to adopt the mindset behind the I Ching and therefore its culture or you have to approach it as a westerner and if you approach it as a westerner it's better to do it through young rather than anything else if you approach it as a westerner whose starting point is the occult then that's going to just shape everything that you experience yeah it will mean that you're not connected to the oriental the chinese mm. culture that produced it <clears throat> and you also don't have a safe psychological vessel by young within which to experience the material that will come through the other alternative from the west of course psychologically is to be skeptical in which case nothing productive will come from it because skepticism as it's commonly understood today is not that uh, nothing is certain not even that as piro of alexandria said Skepticism today seems to, to be that there's nothing in this at all bullshit. Yeah? Um, that isn't true, in my experience uh, of the I Ching. So I treat it with respect, but at some distance at the same time, and want to see it in its fuller context. 
in that sense you can use this as a mirror for your own psyche and perhaps for mm -hmm. extended dynamics to go beyond yourself <clears throat> which uh, in that sense i think it's very useful um with respect to the tarot <clears throat> i'd say be more careful about that it's far easier to lose yourself into the occult and into um woo woo uh, <clears throat> over that which is basically just being fed by your own complexes mm. Yeah, it was about, I guess, a year, year and a half ago, something like that. Um, I, did, I did three things to try and find out what I was like. I did the big five personality test. I did basic MBTI on like 16personalities.com, whatever the standard mm -hmm. one people find online yeah. is. And I got into astrology and in particular, uh, Jungian quote unquote astrology by um, Liz Green. And there was <coughs> Howard something, yeah. something, something. Um, I learned more about myself. It, for, for what it's worth when you're also not particularly familiar with complexes at that point in time. But I, I revealed more to myself about myself through astrology than I did through the other means, because it's a very, very, very potent projection sort of objects to project onto. And that's not, it's not a dismissal either, which, you know, it's, it's sort of, it bursts people's bubbles as well going, Oh, it's only projection. Oh, but it's like, no, no, like this is contents of your psyche being, put out and it's not random at all yeah. I, I i really like it and i like it as a rapport mechanism as well when i've worked with people before who, who like this kind of thing Fa fantastic to like start off a conversation by talking like to do a tarot spread for example mm. to just see where someone's at and see see what's going on I, I i really like them as long as you can keep keep your head and i, I think as you said pauline like, as long mm. as you're not starting your day with your morning coffee and then your tarot spread and then you yeah. check, check the horoscope and you're there yeah. looking every evening with a telescope yeah. up there being like mm. oh there's pisces and it's the new mm. aeon of aquarius mm. i think you're probably okay well, it, if I can kind of just, just add to that on, on the astrology front, we're actually friends with Russell Grant, aren't we? Oh, yeah, who's a um, top uh, yeah. astrologist, TV um, astrologist. And um, <clears throat> we've both had our birth charts done, haven't mm. we, in the past? Mm. And uh, I'd had one done by <clears throat> him. And, yeah. and when we met him recently, it was, it was interesting because although we probably kind of mm. suspected it, it was nonetheless interesting to hear him confirm the fact that he was very influenced by Jung himself mm. and um, that a, a lot of his, um, you know, descriptions that went into the, you know, the various horoscopes were based on his understanding and appreciation of Jung. So he, he would tailor them accordingly. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's it was interesting for us to hear that yes, really, because I guess at one mm. level you could argue there was something of a manipulation going on of the content, but but in such a way that it was probably broad brushstroked enough for people to nonetheless be receptive to it. And this is probably how these things work anyway. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the psyche is trying to interpret the world yes, all the time, it is. and it can be yeah. rejected by saying you're looking for pattern recognition. Yes. You're looking for confirmation bias and whereas that may be true to some extent some of the time it does not explain in a meaningful way the dynamic that's involved behind the projection mm. that's the important thing mm. and that's what you get out of synchronicities it's not the fact of whether there is anything beyond what Jung called an a causal connection principle uh, and that's what you should be looking for is what does this reveal about the process that makes people engage with it, yeah. not in a negating way, but yeah. in an engaging way, because yeah. that will always lead you to something. Mm. It's if you get stuck on the surface with the method that you use, whatever that is, uh, and that then becomes the focus of your mind. That is inductive in the same way that a hypnotist will try and generate induction. He'll get, he'll get you or she will get you to fix your attention on something. 
and believe in it and then follow it. And if you do that with something like tarot or any of the occult methods, you're going to go into very strange places where your ego consciousness is not prepared to experience except through occultism, which is just a further reinforcement of projection without a proper relationship to the contents. So people who engage with astrology and other things properly try, and that's what I mean by properly, mm -hmm. they try to have an organized system of relating that contains forces that would otherwise disturb them. And they may get some insight out of that at a level that's appropriate for them. But if you're a depth psychologist, you need to get behind that. You need to try and find out what is it that's really in the background or if you like, by metaphors, a deep structure that is informing the surface structure of the activity that's been chosen to be used by that person in that context. That's depth psychology. It's not superficial, skeptical, dismissal psychology, which is an alternative. It's also not, if you like, the middle ground between those two, which would just be the absorption of yourself in that process. It's like a dream. You know, and, and those people who can do this, it's not difficult to do, but it can get quite scary. If you can do proper dream re-entry, I mean, I mean proper, I don't mean where you generate a, a, a reproduction of a dream as a starting point and then just wander off, whether it's under the influence of substances or, or whatever else. But when, when you go through a proper dream re-entry technique, there is a crossover point at which you begin to feel the separation of your normal ego, your normal consciousness from your control and you start to become absorbed like a weave in a tapestry, which is the, the dream narrative and environment. And if you're normally conscious at that point, it's very scary because you feel you're losing yourself. It's almost a psychotic episode. We're spurred from this in sleep because we go down on the escalator in a, in a different way that the brain is used to regulating by modulating levels of consciousness and identification if you take yourself into an experience like that without them and very suddenly it can be threatening so to have a safe container then to begin to experience things is one thing but if you go into the occult and you're not careful you can be dragged into an experience that your ego is not prepared for and that can be not only frightening, it can leave you afterwards with a lot of harm that is now associated to consciousness and therefore to your identity of your own personality. And it's negative in such a way that it can break you down. So you have to be careful. Find the right way. And I would suggest you either do it through an organized system that's over a period of time become adapted to containing these forces, even if it is superstitious, or you take a depth psychology approach and get really down to the bottom of the phenomenon. Don't go in without any kind of preparation because yeah. that can disturb you detrimentally. Perfect, perfect. Okay, well, thanks guys. And thank you, Hermes, for your question. Um, this next one comes from Invictus. And Invictus <laughs> says, something entirely different. Which poem is the one that resonates the most with you? Poem? Mm. Well, there are two. I don't know if I want to disclose them. <laughs> um, it's a very, it's a very, um, very personal thing. Mm. Uh, I, I think, uh, mm. as I'm not that into poetry, so the, the poems that impact me have impacted me in, in and on my life, uh, and have had an archetypal effect on me. You could say, uh, but 
in terms of depth, I know it's different to just that. It's not an archetypal image as such, it's deeper. Um, and it's an ancestral resonance of meaning, of which an archetypal level of normal apperception and understanding is too superficial. So I, I don't really, really want to go into that, but, but I'll disclose that much. Mm, okay, okay, what about you, Pauline? Oh, it is a hard. I'd probably have to give it some thought, James. I think I, I'm a bit like Steve, not a great lover of poetry. Um, I, I think you might be thinking of the same poem as me, actually, though you haven't actually said what it is. And I'm not going no, to. No, I know you're not going to. <laughs> um, See how she used her womanly women. <laughs> Uh, I didn't mean whammy. A uh, womanly wild to try to circumvent my defences there, but I'm on to her. Did you really yeah. use the term whamming then? The PewDiePie word? <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear it from him. I know who he is, but I heard it from another source. <laughs> that sort of made my life then, hearing you say whamming. Uh, you, you, you could cheat, to be honest, because Invictus didn't actually specify. I, I don't know the real difference, what you'd call this. Obviously, there's epic poems, like the Odyssey, and then there's just like normal right. poems, which are like short little things. You could cheat and go for an epic poem if you wanted. An epic poem. Mm. Well, I wouldn't consider them to be poems, and that's because I, I'm not educated in that way. You know, um, it's like music, isn't it? You know, we know people who are really deeply into music. But don't listen to music they're just into the theory of it and then they try and tell you what music is whereas the musicians i know who are creatives know the things that just happen and it's a creative process so for me a poem is something which impacts me in a way that i can understand by my own understanding of the definition of a poem so the odyssey for example if you mean that as an epic poem mm. well it's not in the english language originally and there'll be some loss of meaning directly you know that's an epic story. That's a mythic narrative to me. The poem is something for me that would be shorter than that, yeah. but would engage me in a dissociative way to, to get me out of my normal frame of reference and access things which are impersonal and collective, but as I say, deeper than the usual archetypal images. Mm. So uh, within my limitations of ability and understanding, that's the best answer I can give. Mm. Okay. Um... Well, there was one that did impact me a while back on, I think you could say an archetypal level. I don't like it, but it's significant. And I only bring this up because it's got the same name as Invictus, which is the poem Invictus by, by Henley, the, the, um, the old uh, Victorian one. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I've got lots of stories around that poem, actually. But I'll I, I tell you the poem which, out of all the short ones, because I was never a fan of poetry either. I always thought it was, it was a bit weird when I was a student. I'm like, why, why am I learning poetry? I'd much rather learn maths and science. Mm -hmm. um, it's, um, when things go bump in the night, should not really give one a fright. It's the hole in each ear that lets in the fear, that and the absence of light. Because <laughs> I was absolutely terrified of the dark as a kid. Um, I couldn't go to sleep until like my family dog would come up and like sleep at the top of the stairs. I'm like, okay, now the ghost can't get me. So my yeah. mom told me this poem and she wrote it on a piece of paper and she put it on the wall next to me. And I would, I'd, I'd say that and be like, oh, I'm all safe now. Yeah. So out of all the ones that have had an impact, oh, I'd say that. Now you know why you're an introverted <laughs> thinking <time. laughs> That's explained this. <laughs> and why it's so polished and refined. And... It's not bad. I'm proud of it. And uh, hyperbolic as well, James. Hyperbolic in its exaggeration. And moving on to the next question. <laughs> moving swiftly on, yes. <laughs> Actually, to be fair, we've been going for exactly half an hour. He said he's going to stay for another half hour. 
So we could close that there if you wanted to. Uh, no, let's, let's, let's carry on and please don't edit that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's move, moving swiftly on. The next question comes from Matt B. And Matt B says, thank you for the demonstration on Chevro's pendulum. I'm very eager to learn any technique that opens up true communication with the unconscious. The problem I seem to be having is hard to explain in text, so please bear with me. I've been treated for OCD in the past, which, as you know, has to do with chronic overwhelming doubt. At least in CBD, it is often called the doubting disease. Though I am not symptomatic at present, that is, not experiencing the crippling symptoms which had brought me to treatment, the same sort of mechanism seems to be at play when I try and approach the unconscious. It is not that I doubt the technique at all. It's just the same sensation that accompanies the, quote, eternal chess match, end quote, seems to come up when I try to use the technique. I know that the anima is the function through which I approach the inner world, just as the outer world, and it's as if it's stuck in the negative, i.e. disrupting relation with the unconscious. I know this is a bit unclear, but I wonder if you have any suggestions. Many thanks. It's probably the thing that's producing the ruminations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it produces logic loops, uh, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, yeah. The the OCD element. Yes. Oh, yeah, yes, I do mean Absolutely. that. Yeah. I do mean that. I was yeah. just as caught on, on on what this gentleman had said about the you know the CBT approach being the you know how how did he describe it, James? Um, something to do with doubting or it is the yeah, what was it? The doubting disease. Doubting disease. My God, it's a massive, what a thing to say! Suggestion, isn't it? Absolutely yeah, it. yeah, it is. You're saying you are diseased. That's not exactly yeah. a nice thing to say. Yeah. You see, what people need. Uh, I understand that they may not understand that, uh, that or this is this. When you communicate with the unconscious, you're not communicating with yourself as in your ego, your ego personality. The rules are completely different. When you get an apparent paradox like this where there's resistance from the unconscious because it simply amplifies the problem that you've got, that actually is a communication, but it's not been interpreted as a communication. It's been seen as a failure. There is no failure in getting a signal that affirms the presence of the problem. If you think of a different kind of intelligence within, with respect to the unconscious itself, and then its motivations for doing mm. things, then if it amplifies an issue to give back to you, it's suggesting that, that this should be sorted. And that rather than using a method like that and you can develop on from it but you know a video like this unfortunately is not the, the way to to discuss the techniques you need you need to develop on from it and communicate in a slightly different but augmented way similar if you like and different at the same time because there will be a purpose behind the symptoms and simply overriding them is not acceptable, it seems, to the unconscious at this point. So what it's saying is, yes, the symptom is here. And you want to communicate with me? Well, I'm communicating with you. I'm giving you the symptom. So how you adjust to that signal from the unconscious is going to be very important. So I would suggest that you need some help with that that would need to be more personal rather than general. And uh, by yes. proxy, this would be by, by proxy. And it shouldn't be, it should be specific for him. Mm. He's not done anything wrong, except perhaps in interpreting it negatively. Yeah. Because all the best hypnotherapists will understand that, but that is simply a signal coming back. It's not failure. It's that we perhaps try to understand the unconscious in terms of ego or ego consciousness 
and its rationality. But the rationality of the psyche in allowing a complex to emit symptoms like this sometimes has to be understood because what appears to be negative isn't always negative. Mm. And it's one of the features of OCD mm. as well. And there's this doubting, oh my God, that's awful. That's just that, that is a complete failure to understand the unconscious. And that's one of the big problems of CBT. Mm. It's hyper-rational, it's superficial. And of course you cannot demand that the psyche obeys you. It will resist at that point, if you like, if you want to use that, that kind of uh, expression, and it will amplify and increase symptoms. It also has to get used to you being different. Remember, it's a system. <clears throat> and as much as we are unfamiliar with our unconscious, it is also unfamiliar with us too, believe it or not. And when you get a change in conscious attitude, sometimes the unconscious wants to test out whether the ego, the ego is going to continue to adapt in a positive way and it's not transitory. That's the same attitude that the ego takes to the unconscious. It's a system. It's got to be in balance. And that's why I always insist that people are polite to the psyche and respect this and don't push too hard. Pace things appropriately, slowly and respectfully. Then you'll get an adjustment on the inside. That's just a general uh, rule of thumb, if you like about how to, to, to handle what appears to be resistance. But with respect to this, I, I would say that you're getting a signal because there's something more of value behind the symptom and that the exaggeration or the resistance that you appear to be experiencing is simply it communicating that to you. Therefore, another kind of approach or a wider approach and the building up of trust so the unconscious trust the ego is necessary. If you can adopt that attitude, you'll relax and it will relax because the tension and the communication is on both sides. Understand that. That is very, very important to appreciate. So I would suggest that he, he needs a little bit of help, if you like, to move beyond the position he's got mm. to at this stage. But yes, it can be sorted and he must understand and relax, relax about it. And, and if you can, apply your psychological immune system to macrophaging that negative suggestion that he's received from those cognitive therapists. Oh, yes, that's, that's so damaging. No, that's so <clears throat> damaging. nothing at all no. about the unconscious. All I understand is hyper-rationality. Mm. And you can't deal with something that isn't hyper-rational within the unconscious. It has its own rationality, which is different by being hyper-rational. It just doesn't work. So um, perhaps if he can reach out to us yes, um, through the Discord, through on direct messaging and um, we'll, we'll see what we can do to help. I was just quickly going to add, this poor guy now, like you say, though, he's been given that suggestion that yeah. he has a doubting disease. I mean, the unconscious itself might believe that, you know, it, that he, yeah. he doubts it. Yeah. Um, there's so many ways in which that could play out. Oh, absolutely. Um, you, you will get, you'll get the doubting coming the other you way. You will, yes. Because the unconscious will doubt the ego, the ego, the conscious, yeah, yeah, it will doubt yeah. it back. Mm. What a ridiculous suggestion yeah. to give to That's someone. a really nasty piece of suggestion. Uh, mm. And because it's polarised, it's yeah. in terms of opposites again, mm. rather than communication, which levels out yeah. the illusion of duality. It's a communication mm. within a system which itself is complete and whole. This hyper-rational uh, approach, it's going to cause further problems. So, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we need to, um, yeah. to talk to him. I think, yeah. give them some help on that if we can.